Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, our participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner. Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Misty, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop. And today's program is a collaborative effort between the Gastric Cancer Foundation and Cancer Care. And we're delighted to partner with them on this program today. And you'll be hearing more about the wonderful work that the Gastric Cancer Foundation provides. Um, today's program um, is supported by an educational grant from Daiichi Sankyo, Inc., and I really want to thank them for the support of this program for many of our programs as well. And um, I uh, want to um, you know, welcome everyone, and we have quite a few of you on the call today. We have over 203 participants. You come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas, and frontier communities. And we have some international participants from Argentina, Australia, Canada, China, Japan, Lithuania, Poland, Portugal, and United Kingdom. So it's really a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Now, before um, I introduce our first speaker, I would like to ask you all just a few questions. Um, and those questions will help us. This is now 2022, and we're planning lots of programs this year. And it will help us to better understand your needs. Um, so I'm going to begin with our and for those of you who are live streaming the program, you'll be able to see the questions. I will be reading the questions. You'll be able to actually rate your answers to the questions. So the first question is, on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand gastric cancer, including diagnosis, staging, and the role of precision medicine in predicting response to treatment in the context of COVID-19 and experience. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand biomarkers and diagnostic testing to inform treatment decisions for gastric cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand new treatment approaches for metastatic gastric cancer, including chemotherapy, targeted treatments, and immunotherapy. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. I understand how to prevent and manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain in the treatment of gastric cancer in the context of COVID-19 experience. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. I understand the role of clinical trials in the treatment of gastric cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank all of you for participating in these questions. Um, that really will help us to better know what your needs are and to plan these programs better. And now it is my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Joffrey Koo. Dr. Koo is medical oncologist, head of esophagogastric section Gastrointestinal Oncology Service, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Ku will be addressing overview of gastric cancer, including diagnosis and staging in the context of COVID-19 and Syrians. 
biomarkers and diagnostic testing to inform treatment decisions, precision medicine, predicting response to treatment, new treatment approaches for metastatic astrocancer, including chemotherapy, targeted treatments, and immunotherapy. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ku. Thank you so much, Cheryl. And it's, it really is a kind of a highlight at the beginning of the year for me to be able to do this and to be with everyone um, virtually. So, you know, the first thing I do want to acknowledge is that, you know, we're all living in, um, in a stressful times with the Omicron variant and, you know, with the various surges that are going on you know, around the country. And I think it's, it's certainly stressful for, you know, all of us, uh, but also for healthcare providers and healthcare workers. Um, and, and part of the issue is that, you know, many of my colleagues have Omicron, and as a result, the hospital is relatively short-staffed. So certainly I, I would, you know, uh, echo the recommendation of just about, you know, every, um, you know, healthcare provider and, uh, that everyone should get vaccinated. And if everyone is vaccinated, they should be boosted. Um, not to take time away from talking about stomach cancer, but, you know, Memorial Sloan Kettering is a, is a freestanding uh, hospital. So it's unlike, you know, most other hospitals uh, in the U.S. Um, you know, our patient population is, is all cancer patients. And so as a result, most people are, you know, understandably cautious. Most people are either vaccinated or boosted. Um, so, you know, while we have, you know, a fair number of patients in the hospital who have COVID, um, there actually are very few patients who are admitted because of COVID. So I cannot emphasize or encourage vaccination and boosting enough. So, you know, with that, I'll, I'll turn to the topics um, that I was assigned. And really that's talking concerning my cancer and how we diagnose and, and how we stage it. So I think one of the challenges of stomach cancer in the U.S. is that, A, it's not a very common cancer, so there's not necessarily a lot of awareness about it. Uh, and, B, you know, the um, well, because it's an uncommon cancer, we don't screen for it. And, and I think, C, finally, the symptoms associated with stomach cancer really are pretty kind of nebulous or vague. So certainly many patients, when, when you know, when they are diagnosed with stomach cancer, have symptoms such as um, increased acid reflux. Uh, or they may feel that their appetite is a little bit low, uh, or they may get full a little bit more quickly, or they may have some discomfort, um, you know, after they eat. So, you know, a lot of these symptoms literally could be could be could be the same as someone who has uh, garden variety acid reflux. So, so it's not uncommon for the diagnosis to be delayed uh, because of that. Um, but I think it's also become particularly an issue over the last two years because of COVID-19. So, you know, I've met many patients now uh, who started out with these symptoms, and when these symptoms were kind of persisting and not getting better, for example, after they, they took, um, you know, a Prilosec or a Nexium, um, uh, they actually had difficulty getting in to see their primary care physician. And when they saw their primary care physician, they had some difficulty um, being referred to the gastroenterologist for an endoscopy. So I think, unfortunately, we're living through some of these same challenges again, um, which really comes back to the point that, you know, vaccination not only protects us, but you know, protects, you know, um, everyone else around us in terms of, you know, helping to free up healthcare resources. Um, you know, the, the, the bottom line remains that, you know, if, you know, you feel you start having any of these symptoms and if they're not going away, it is ultimately, you know, important to alert your primary care physician to them. Um, ultimately, the, the first test or the most important test in making the diagnosis is an endoscopy. And, you know, that's a procedure where uh, a camera is put into the stomach and the stomach and the esophagus are thoroughly examined. 
and any abnormal areas of biopsy. Um, we consider this the gold standard because it really is the most accurate test. Uh, sometimes uh, an endoscopy can be preceded by an X-ray. A regular X-ray tends to be relatively uninformative. Uh, a CAT scan can certainly offer more information, especially if there are problems or metastases outside of the stomach. But ultimately, you know, the the most accurate way of evaluating the stomach itself will is with an um, is with an endoscopy. So. Um, you know, once the endoscopy has been performed uh, and if a diagnosis of stomach cancer is made, then the next step really would be to obtain imaging to figure out exactly where um, uh, where the cancer cells have spread to or hopefully have not spread to. And normally that would be a CAT scan. Uh, and frequently we would also consider a PET scan uh, in addition to a CAT scan. Um, a CAT scan is essentially a series of uh, computer-generated x-rays uh, a PET scan involves um, introducing a slightly radioactive dye, which can go to where the cancer cells are and light up uh, and identify areas where, um, uh, where the cancer cells could have spread to. Um, hopefully, uh, both the CAT scan and the PET scan will show no clear spread of the cancer. And at that point, uh, patients uh, should be referred to a surgeon, uh, hopefully a surgeon who specializes in gastric cancer surgery. Uh, a very important test that should be done at that point is what we call a laparoscopy or a diagnostic laparoscopy. And that's a minor surgical procedure. It's a day surgical procedure. The tiny incisions are made um, in the abdomen. A camera is then introduced into the, into the abdomen. And the surgeon is able to look around to make sure that there are no uh, cancer deposits in the lining of the abdomen. Uh, this is a very important test. Uh, because about 10 or 15% of the time, even when CAT scans and PET scans show no spread, the laparoscopy can show spread. So that, uh, in totality, endoscopy, imaging, as well as the laparoscopy, are kind of the most important tests that we use for staging the cancer itself. Um, after having staged the cancer, uh, we would then um, also try to obtain more information about the cancer cells themselves, and that's when we focus on biomarkers. And the biomarkers basically refer to uh, a test um, uh, either of the blood or of the cancer cells uh, that basically identifies um, uh, whether certain treatments are more likely to work or less likely to work. And in gastric cancer, you know, today in early 2022, uh, there are three biomarkers that we would consider a standard of care. Um, the first one is, is actually something we've been doing for more than a decade. And that's to look for a protein called HER2, HER number two. HER2 is present in about 20 to 25% of stomach cancer cells. Um, and when the HER2 protein is present, it's essentially a driving force or a dependency of the cancer cells. Uh, but it also means that there are other treatments that we can add to chemotherapy uh, to try to attack the cancer cells. Uh, the second biomarker that's become standard is uh, a protein called PDL1. Uh, PDL1 stands for program death ligand 1, uh, which is kind of an odd name, but PDL1 is a very important protein uh, because it gives us important information about whether cancer cells are more likely or less likely to respond to immunotherapy, uh, which now is clearly established to have activity uh, and benefit in, in treating stomach cancer. So when the PDL1 protein is present and when it's present at high levels, then those cancer cells are more likely to respond favorably to immunotherapy. Uh, the last test that we would do uh, is to look for uh, what we call mismatch repair 
proteins. Um, and this also gives us information about how likely cancer cells are to respond to immunotherapy. Um, based on the mismatch repair protein status, there are some cancer cells that can absolutely melt away with immunotherapy. So in 2022, you know, the standard of care really is uh, to test for HER2, PDL1, as well as the mismatch repair protein um, um, status. So all of that relates to um, this idea of precision medicine that we are able to you know, identify the most appropriate treatment for, for, one, for one person or individual. Uh, and as I mentioned, when the HER2 protein is present, um, there, there, there's a drug called trastuzumab as well as newer drugs that block HER2 that we would add to chemotherapy. Uh, when the PDL1 protein is present, especially when it's present at a higher level, uh, we would consider adding immunotherapy to chemotherapy uh, under specific situations that I will shortly discuss. Uh, and lastly, based on the mismatch repair protein status, uh, we would also strongly consider the use of immunotherapy under certain circumstances, um, because in those cases, um, I mean, literally tumors can, can melt away when we add immunotherapy to chemo or even when we use immunotherapy um, on its own. So, you know, the last time I participated in this talk was was a year ago, uh, and the remarkable thing is that since that time, uh, in, in last spring, uh, there actually have been um, three new FDA approvals um, in, uh, in stomach cancer um, where we've been able to add um, immunotherapy to treatments. So, so very briefly, um, um, the first FDA approval, um, or, or the most relevant FDA approval, uh, relates to the situation where the stomach cancer cells have spread, where it's metastasized. It's now FDA approved that you can add immunotherapy to chemotherapy um, for just about everyone. But again, like I said, how likely the immunotherapy is that is will help someone or will kill the cancer cells uh, really depends on the PDL1 status of, of the tumors. Um, and there is an FDA approval to add immunotherapy to chemotherapy um, when the HER2 protein is present and also when it's not present. Uh, so basically, uh, essentially for anyone who has newly diagnosed metastatic gastric cancer where the gastric cancer cells have spread and there is not a role for surgery, uh, patients are able to receive chemo with immunotherapy uh, and possibly also with uh, with trastuzumab if, if the stomach cancer cells have the uh, have the HER2 protein. Um, the other FDA approval uh, is actually in a very interesting context, and it's actually as a preventative treatment. So specifically, there are some patients who have um, gastric cancer that is uh, right at the beginning of the stomach, or really at the junction between the esophagus, uh, which is the food pipe, and the stomach. And in those patients. Um, um, it, it, they are sometimes treated with a combination of chemotherapy and radiation before surgery. And after that, um, uh, there is potentially a role to receive immunotherapy for one year and a preventative way to decrease the risk of the cancer coming back. Um, so the, so, so, um, um, you know, so really the, the, in the last year we've, you know, had these significant FDA approvals and certainly there are, you know, ongoing studies that are looking at um, additional roles for immunotherapy and additional um, places where we can add immunotherapy. That's something I'll def def defer to Dr. Sambal to talk about. Uh, and other than that, I mean, we also have other targeted therapies that are really becoming 
quite exciting. Um, there are new drugs that are blocking uh, other proteins and blocking other dependencies of the cancer cells, uh, so that potentially in the next one to two years, uh, we may have even new treatments to talk about. Uh, but overall, it's an exciting time. Um, it is a challenging time because of Omicron, but, but hopefully you know, these surges will, will all be behind us in the next couple of months. So you know, with that, I'll, I'll, I'll stop and, um, and um, uh, send it back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Ku. That was really outstanding and really just a, a wonderful overview for everybody. And also just um, set the tone for the entire program today. We get a lot of information. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. So thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Uh, Bassam Sonbal. And Dr. Sonbal um, is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Mayo Clinic School of Medicine, Senior Associate Consultant, Division of Hematology Oncology, Gastrointestinal Cancer Program, Mayo Clinic, Phoenix, Arizona. And Dr. Sonbal will be addressing clinical trial updates, how research contributes to treatment options, preventing and managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain in the context of COVID-19 and its variants, and the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments, guidelines to prepare, including technology, list of questions, follow-up care, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Bassam. Thank you very much, uh, Carolyn, and thank you, everyone. And, of course, it's a pleasure to participate again in this program, um, excellent program. Um, as you heard from Dr. Ku, I mean, the standard of care for treatment uh, of, of advanced uh, disease in, in gastric cancer is really with the combination of chemotherapy uh, as a backbone uh, in, in, uh, in some patients. Uh, we, we add uh, some other things depending on the biomarkers you heard about. So sometimes we add immunotherapy, sometimes we add uh, targeted therapy like uh, trastuzumab, and sometimes we use immunotherapy alone even without the chemotherapy. So in general, the ultimate goal behind developing any uh, of these therapies or any new drug in general is really to achieve cure, which is really getting rid of the cancer completely. And everything that has been discussed today with all the medications and all the chemotherapies, immunotherapy, all of these advancements, uh, they, they have been achieved as part of the results of clinical trials and research. So when we say clinical trial, what does that mean? It, it really, any, any new drug uh, that's usually developed, it starts with a lab on test tubes in animals. And then if we see that there is a promise with that drug, we take it then to what we call a phase one study. And phase one basically means that uh, we're gonna administer the drug in a very controlled environment in, in uh, participants, in humans, and uh, to look for any side effects or what we call safety in general, and also to look for a signal of efficacy, which means whether the drug uh, works or not. Now, if the drug is uh, deemed to be safe, and there is a signal that's promising, then we go to what we call phase two, which is technically testing the same drug on a larger group of patients and looking more whether it's really working in them or not. Now, if we see that that drug is actually having a lot of promise, it's shrinking the cancer, it's working on the cancer and patients are feeling better, then we take it to what we call phase three, which is the ultimate test for any drug being developed. Uh, which really compares the new drug to the standard of care. 
And all what you heard about from Dr. Ku, most of these drugs they uh, and the results, the recent uh, advancements really, uh, they are results of, of phase three studies uh, showing some benefit of the new drugs developed uh, versus standard of care. By, by showing benefits, I mean by that, that patients are either living longer or living longer and feeling better as well. So each one of these drugs, again, went through that process, and this is all because of uh, patients who participated in those trials and studies, and this is really because of the altruism of those patients uh, being able to participate. And of course, since COVID, lots of things have changed, and the logistics also changed uh, in order to ensure the safety uh, for patients. For example, uh, as a good portion of clinical trials and in, in, in usually are in uh, bigger centers in larger cities, uh, lots of patients need to travel. So many cancer centers are now offering uh, virtual visits, uh, whether as second opinion or to look uh, for availability of such trials before traveling, um, or even uh, patients who are already on trials. Some studies are allowing patients to do some of the visits as videos uh, uh, in the overall uh, aspects of care. Now, of course, this is all different between centers and across studies, but the point is oh, we had to be creative to, to, uh, to uh, really accommodate and uh, to ensure the safety for patients in general. Now, the other thing I want to talk about is really the, the symptoms in general that uh, comes in with this disease and the management of those symptoms. Of course, part of taking care of of, of gastric cancer, uh, and one of the key components is to control uh, the symptoms associated with, with uh, the disease itself. And we know that the symptoms can arise from the cancer itself or as side effects of the treatment, whether the treatment is immunotherapy, chemotherapy, or others. And big part of managing symptoms is to treat the cancer itself. So a lot of times you will hear from the doctor saying that uh, uh, especially at the initial visit, that you'll probably feel better after starting chemotherapy. And some, for some patients, that sounds uh, a little bit uh, strange at first, but it is really true for the majority of patients, as many of the patients, uh, many patients really uh, start feeling better after the, the cancer starting uh, to, to shrink, um, because many of those symptoms are driven by the cancer itself. So if you treat the cancer, then the symptoms get better. Um, by that, it's, uh, for example, you know, um, uh, uh, some patients have symptoms of feeling uh, with, with stomach cancer, feeling very full very early uh, after eating even small bites. That's what we call early satiety. So we hear patients um, saying that they feel better after starting treatment. Same thing with uh, sometimes cancer can cause pain, and we hear also some improvement in, on, in the pain um, after starting the, the treatment for the cancer. So a lot of these symptoms, again, arise from the cancer itself. However, chemotherapy and immunotherapy also have their own side effects, uh, and they can cause nausea, diarrhea. They can also cause neuropathy, which, is, uh, which can vary really from tingling sensation in fingers or toes, or, or it could be uh, something that can disrupt the daily function. So at the end, it's, it's really a, a balance uh, that you and your doctor have to work uh, together on uh, to, ch to achieve the maximum benefit of, of any treatment and, and try to minimize and, and manage the side effects. 
Um, another example, I want to remind everyone that we have advancements not just in the treatments of the chemotherapy and others, but also uh, in general with uh, nausea medications and supportive medications. And as part of the treatment of the symptoms, you know, your oncologist might uh, consult with other team members such as palliative care doctors, pain doctors, social worker, nutritionists, and others. They all work as a team, uh, communicate together to uh, take care of you and, and uh, deliver the, the best care possible. And I always tell patients, and I always tell patients that, you know, if, if the doctor doesn't hear from you, they, they assume that everything is going on. So uh, that everything is going on is, is actually going well and no problems in there. So uh, it's important that if you have an issue, please communicate and send to your doctor and the, uh, the, the, the team members so that they know what's going on. And uh, the the other thing is overall, I, I think there are main key questions that you know any patient listening should really address with their healthcare team, uh, team in in general. First thing is is what to expect from the treatment proposed. What are the side effects? How long do they last? Uh, how is it going to affect the quality of life? The other thing is what to expect from the disease itself, and uh, and uh, the, the what are the things associated with that in terms of the symptoms and how they disrupt quality of life. And the other thing, you know, related to the above is 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 uh, you know, can I still work if I want to as a patient? Can I travel for vacation? The timing of that. So all of these questions I think are important uh, when when you discuss with with your topic uh, with with your with your doctor uh, in in this topic. Um, the last thing I want to talk about again with with COVID. Now we see uh, lots of the visits are switched to virtual visits, um, and whether phone phone visits or video visits. And these types of visits, I think they have really huge advantage. Um, of course, anything has its own disadvantage as well, but the big advantage is, is really now you can communicate with the doctor and the, the team members in a, in, a, in, in a really safe uh, fashion. Um, and again, uh, some of the advantage, uh, advantages as well is to facilitate the, this care, help avoiding travels, exposures, at the same time, I think there are a few things you should consider when you're scheduling a visit or you're thinking of scheduling virtual visits. Uh, first of all, I think you should ask yourself, is this visit appropriate to be virtual or not? For example, if you have new symptoms that are concerning and you want to be examined, I think it's better to have this visit as a face-to-face -face instead of virtual. Now, if the visit is appropriate, then I think uh, it's very important to to be prepared for the virtual visit. Uh, the environment you're in is very important. So you should be in an environment with good internet coverage and quite uh, 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 quiet enough uh, for, for you to hear your doctor and they can hear you. Of course, uh, for example, it's not advisable to call from a car or while driving or in a living room where TV is on, the background or you know, uh, kids are playing or something like that. And uh, of course, uh, it, it, it's a very good idea to always introduce who you have uh, with you in the room at the beginning of the virtual visit so that the doctor uh, can know who, who's with you uh, because they might not be able to see that person. Uh, and this is mainly really to, to respect your privacy uh, during the visit. Um, Similarly, like to the face-to-face -face visits, I think it's uh, always important to be prepared with the questions you think you want to discuss with the doctor to maximize, maximize the benefit of the 
visit in general. And of course, it's always important to be on time. Um, and with that, I want to also try to be on time. And I want to conclude my part for this presentation. And uh, thank you very much for listening. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Sonball. That was really outstanding, really wonderful presentation. And really uh, giving people a lot of information about um, that the treatment can actually um, um, make them feel better. They may have some side effects, but those can be managed and that um, and just all the different ways that they can communicate with their healthcare team. So thank you so much. That was I'm sure there'll be questions for you during the Q and A and so thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden. Ms. Bearden is an oncology dietitian um, at the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center and Ms. Bearden will be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. And it's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague Ms. Bearden. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. So nutrition and hydration are essential in, in the tolerance to your treatment and your quality of life. Um, your diet might be modified throughout your cancer treatment to assist with managing side effects such as decreased appetite, reflux, indigestion, um, the feeling of um, satiety or feeling full quickly. Um, nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, and potentially weight loss. So a dietitian can provide you with your individual calorie and protein and fluid needs, along with information on modification of diet and addressing any potential side effects that you may be experiencing. Now each person responds differently to treatment, so it was said earlier about the importance of you communicating with your healthcare team. The sooner that we know what you're experiencing, the sooner that we can step in and help support you. Um, we don't. We know some things that come up throughout your treatment, but each individual goes through their own journey, and the severity of side effects is very independent to each patient. So you need to let us know. If someone's not asking you about it, then tell us about it. So. <clears throat> In general, the goal with your nutrition, um, with the nutrition plan is really to avoid any significant weight loss, improve your tolerance to diet, and work with you on incorporating foods that, that you enjoy and that you can tolerate best through your treatment. So weight loss is something that a lot of patients kind of, you know, brush off a little bit saying, oh, I can lose a few pounds and it's, it's, I've got weight to lose, I don't need to worry about it. But the reality is, while you're going through treatment, um, unintentional weight loss can actually result in a loss of lean muscle mass. It can impact your immune function. Um, it can result in increased weakness, potentially increasing your risk of falls, delaying wound healing, and potentially delaying your treatment. So even if you're overweight, you can become malnourished. When nutrition needs are not met, your body utilizes your muscle um, as a resource for energy, and so caloric intake is really important. So it's very important for you to know where you need to be and then what changes to make in order to help you meet those goals. So if you're struggling with eating and not getting enough food in or based on your treatment plan, your team may talk with you about a feeding tube. Not every patient has a feeding tube. And... Um, it's something not to fear. It's, it's seen, please see it as the same, um, with the same eyes that you see your treatment as you're going through for your cancer. Um, it's just a, another tool to help you meet the goals of, of fighting your cancer. And so a feeding tube can be a short-term or a long-term method in supporting um, you to meet your nutritional goals and fluid needs during your time of treatment. 
So um, this might be something that you um, talk about with your healthcare team, and please don't fear the possibility of having a feeding tube. Um, there are medications to assist with side effects. Um, the sooner we know about the side effects that you're experiencing, the sooner that we can step in and help. Um, you may have the medication, but you may not remember exactly how to take it. I see this a lot with my patients, especially with nausea medication. Um, and so knowing when the right time is to take it to help control the nausea and then seeing on a regular plan based on um, your treatment, oftentimes the, the team will know that a certain medication causes more nausea or it's going to cause diarrhea. And so they want you to take that medication even if in the initial part you're not having it. It potentially could happen um, within a few hours after you having a certain treatment. Um, if there are foods that are giving you trouble, write those down so you can communicate that with your healthcare team. It can really tell us a lot. Um, it may be um, something that doesn't seem so obvious to you, but those little facts can really help us formulate something um, to put together as a plan to help you with your, your tolerance. The last thing is your hydration. Now, hydration is essential. A lot of times we overlook it because we're talking about weight and getting enough food in. Most patients, if they're not eating enough, they're usually not drinking enough. And dehydration is very serious. It can actually increase your side effects, such as nausea, fatigue. It can make you feel dizzy and unsteady, give you a headache. And fluids are anything that's liquid at room temperature. So water, milk, sports drinks. A general guideline is most people need between 8 and 10, 8 ounces of fluid per day. And some treatments, such as radiation, can actually increase your fluid needs. So it's important for you to, to have that information. In closing, there are several members of your healthcare team here dedicated um, through your journey, and we want to be here to support you, and so please be sure to communicate with us. Thanks so much. I'm going to now hand the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Bearden. That was really excellent. Lots of informative tips for everybody to know about, and I know that um, everyone is always interested in eating and eating tips, so thank you for providing those and hydration as well. Thank you. I know there'll be questions for you always there are during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Stacy Hirschman. And Ms. Hirschman is Executive Director of Gastric Cancer Foundation. And she'll be discussing the free programs and services of the Gastric Cancer Foundation. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague and partner organization on this, uh, on this today's program. Ms. Hirschman. Well, thank you, Carolyn, and thank you to Cancer Care we're really thrilled to join together to offer these workshops. And really a special thank you to today's um, expert presenters. I know that I've learned new information and it is so encouraging to hear about new treatment options that have been introduced even since our last workshop. Uh, there is hope. I could speak for hours on the work of the Gastric Cancer Foundation, but I won't. Uh, we wanna reserve time for your questions. So I want to invite you to visit our website, which is simply gastriccancer.org, to learn about our programs and resources in depth. And I'll just use my limited time to highlight a few things. First, I want you to know that the Gastric Cancer Foundation funds research. It's a big focus for us, and we've granted over $3 million in our first decade of grant making. We all know that research is the key to continued advances and there is a way for you to be part of it. If you are a patient or a family member, I urge you to check out the Gastric Cancer Registry on our website by 
contributing, enrolling, and providing your story and possibly a tissue or a saliva sample, you can support the work of scientists who are trying to find better diagnostics and treatments. Uh, there is a link on the website, and the registry team can answer all your questions and help you through the process. We do have resources for patients. Our website, you'll be tired of hearing, gastriccancer.org, is a hub of information and links. And if you sign up for our e-newsletter, updates will arrive directly in your inbox. So it's an easy way to stay up to date on the latest developments. We also offer a safe online community exclusively for patients and caregivers. And you can um, join um, the community, ask questions, share information and experience with people who are on the same journey and understand the disease firsthand. There's no obligation, it's private, and I encourage you to check it out. The link is right on our homepage. We just heard about clinical trials, and I want you to be aware that we offer a free clinical trials navigator to help you sort through the complicated array of studies and learn what might be relevant. Navigators are educators, and they will help you be prepared to discuss options with your care team. And last but not least, I want to draw to your attention our nutrition support series called the Gesundheit Kitchen. It is a wonderful resource for patients and families who want tips on how to live and even enjoy eating after treatment and surgery, and most important to get the nutrition you need, and that was just discussed. Um, take a look, Hans Rufert, one of our board members who is a gastric cancer survivor and a professional chef, joins with a licensed dietitian to present short episodes, um, and all of them are archived on our website. I think you'll appreciate the spirit, his sense of humor and optimism um, with which he approaches life. So let me wrap up. No one needs to face this diagnosis alone. I invite you to check out our website, yes, it's gastrocancer.org, and take advantage of the support and resources that are available, and please be in touch if you have questions or need help. Thanks, and I'll throw this back to oh. Carolyn. And, and thank you so much, uh, Stacey. That was really wonderful on this session. And I also also wanted to give a call out to that wonderful kitchen that you described because I think it just it's just really, um, it's a very wonderful site to visit, as is the entire site, of course. But um, if you're having any food challenges, it is a great place to kind of look at. It's just terrific. Okay, thank you. Um, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And I'm Carolyn Messner. I'm Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. And I just want to go over with you the free services that you may access from Cancer Care. Cancer Care, many people call us on our Hope Line, 1-800-813-4673, or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Um, and um, when you do either of those, you will be connected to an oncology social worker. We have about 35 oncology social workers on staff. And they are there to help you and provide support. So what do we do, actually? So if you call our Hope Line or visit our website, you'll be connected to an oncology social worker who will see what your issues are and try to help you to, with those questions and concerns that you may have. In addition, we do offer um, both financial, and, and, um, financial services and co-payment assistance um, help as well. 
So that's another resource for many of you struggling with financial issues or covering your medications, your treatments. Um, in addition, we do offer online support groups. We have a case management team that will help you with all particular issues that you may be struggling with in terms of just the particulars of getting the resources that you need and that we may not have, but we know where you can get them. Um, and um, we also offer these programs, these webcasts on a regular basis on many different topics and different types of cancer. And we also have a number of pub different publications. So I encourage you to take advantage of these, um, of these, uh, of these services um, so that you don't feel like you're alone. They're here to help you. And now, before we move on to the Q&A, um, again, I just want to ask you all just a few questions. Um, and this will be based on what you've learned in today's program. It gives us, again, a sense of what, what we can do to better help you to to know more about um, gastric cancer. So the first question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of gastric cancer, including diagnosis, staging, and the role of precision medicine in predicting response to treatment in the context of COVID-19 and Syrians. And for those of you who are live streaming the program, you'll be able to rate these questions. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of biomarkers and diagnostic testing to inform treatment decisions for gastric cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of new treatment approaches for metastatic gastric cancer, including chemotherapy, targeted treatments, and immunotherapy. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to work with the healthcare team to utilize your tips and suggestions to prevent and manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain in the context in the treatment of gastric cancer in the context of COVID-19 and experience. Then this will be the last question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of participating in clinical trials for gastric cancer as a treatment option. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. It really helps us to see um, what your needs are going forth, um, and uh, so thank you all for participating. And now we have time for questions. I'm going to ask Misty to bring all of our speakers on board, and um, we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Um, and so, um, Misty, if you could explain to the participants how to queue up and ask questions, and we'll let the questions begin. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. 
And we have a question from one of our online participants, um, and this would be for Dr. Sanpal. What are typical strategies for managing side effects secondary to immune therapy? In what context would you stop immune therapy due to side effects? Yeah, thank you. It's it's an, a really excellent uh, question um, because uh, immunotherapy side effects are different from chemotherapy. You know, to understand the side effects of immunotherapy, I think it's it's important to understand the mechanism. So, in in immunotherapy, you're given a drug, um, going all over the body and activating the immune system to fight the cancer. But when you're activating the immune system, the immune system can literally affect um, any other parts of the body and what we call inflame that. So most commonly we have, uh, for example, thyroiditis, uh, changes in thyroid uh, gland function, uh, colitis, and, and other things. I, I usually name if, uh, some of the main and common side effects to patients, and I tell them, because any organ can be affected, I can't name, uh, you know, all the symptoms that can arise. What I can tell you, it's very, very important communication, again, to the communication key. If you notice anything that has changed out of the usual, just call, contact your, your doctor and let them know, and then they can address based on that. For example, you know, uh, if you're having diarrhea and you're on chemotherapy with loose stool, that's different from having loose stools while you're on immunotherapy, and that the treatment is different as well. In general, regarding the, the treatment of the side effects, uh, in general, it really depends on what type of side effect you're having from immunotherapy, but m mostly mild side effects can be, uh, we can usually continue the immunotherapy, uh, but treat the symptoms. More profound side effects, uh, we hold the immunotherapy and start steroids. The more severe side effects, we usually admit the patient to the hospital, give intravenous steroids and uh, more immunosuppressants, and in some cases permanently stop the immunotherapy. So it all depends on what type of side effects uh, the patient's having. Excellent. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. And a question for Dr. Koo. Um, and is HIPEC or EPIC an option in post-tumor blockage removal with metastatic gastric cancer? I think if you could explain HIPEC yeah, so, and EPIC. Sure. So, so I, I, think the, um, I, I think the question is about something called HIPEC, which is heated intraperitoneal um, chemotherapy. So, so, the, uh, so basically there's, there's, not a, um, there's not a clear answer to this question. So uh, I think the premise of the question is that um, one of the places that stomach cancer cells can spread to is the lining of the abdomen, which we call the peritoneum. And the peritoneum essentially is uh, immediately internal to the skin and the fat as you go through the abdomen. Uh, and it really surrounds the entire abdomen. So all the organs of the abdomen, you know, so stomach, intestines, liver, all of that stuff is within, uh, is contained within the, 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 the peritoneum. So when stomach cancer cells spread there, um, they can cause any number of symptoms. They can cause pain. Um, uh, uh, they can produce uh, uh, kind of fluid in the abdomen, what we call ascites. And because the uh, the tumors can push on the intestines, they can cause blockages as well. So so um, there is an approach called intraperitoneal chemotherapy, where essentially we take chemotherapy drugs. And rather than infusing them intravenously through the vein, 
Uh, we literally inject kind of a one or two liters of it into the abdominal cavity itself. The idea is that the chemotherapy bathes the cancer cells and potentially can kill them. So, you know, this, this technology and the idea is not new, but, but I think in the interest of time, I would say that, you know, there is no consensus or agreement on a global basis or a national basis uh, as to whether this approach actually works or not. Um, so I guess the, the, the short answer would be that, I mean, you know, um, there is not a clear role. And, and I think unless uh, someone is treated uh, at an institution that really has significant experience in doing this, um, it really is not something um, to be casually considered. Uh, I would say certainly that at Memorial Kettering, um, if someone has blockage from, from tumors in the peritoneum, uh, we certainly would not consider um, uh, intraperitoneal chemotherapy, giving chemotherapy into the peritoneum itself. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and a question for Dr. Sanbal. What medication, if any, most effectively treats esophageal spasm? Um, not sure what's meant by esophageal spasm. Um, usually, um, like esophageal spasm is referred to um, kind of motility problems, uh, kind of with the movement of the esophagus. This is not something that we see commonly with uh, gastric cancer. Um, if I mean, sometimes we see what we call dysphagia, which is a problem swallowing. This is mostly if the gastric cancer, stomach cancer is arising from the junction between the esophagus and the stomach. And the treatment uh, can vary. Can treatment can be uh, treating the cancer itself, whether it was chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and others. Uh, it can be with endoscopy, so going down with a scope and uh, opening things up with what we call dilation or putting a stent in there. Or sometimes we ask our radiation oncology colleagues to do radiation from uh, from the outside and, and kind of to uh, help. Um, again, esophageal spasm by what, what we usually refer to as esophageal spasm is not something that is common in, in esophageal cancer, in, in gastric cancer in general. Thank you. Um, um, and um, question for Dr. Ku. What testing should be done for someone who has incomplete intestinal metaplasia after they've had an endoscopy? Yeah, so, so that's... Um, um, so I think that's also an important question. I, I, I think so intestinal metaplasia... Um, it, it, it's actually a little bit different when we when we see it uh, in the stomach or when we see it at the junction between the esophagus and the stomach, and in fact when we see it in the esophagus. But uh, intestinal metaplasia um, is is uh, when we find it in the esophagus or the junction is something called Barrett's esophagus, um, and there um, there is a very very low risk that um, Barrett's esophagus could become a cancer of the esophagus or the junction, of the gastroesophageal junction. It, the risk is actually, thankfully, very low. Um, um, if 100 patients have followed over a decade, only two patients will eventually develop cancer, but clearly that's two patients too many. So I think in general, um, I'm certainly more familiar when it, when it occurs more at the junction and in the esophagus. Uh, when to repeat an endoscopy really depends on uh, whether there's something called dysplasia. And dysplasia refers to the fact that um, as normal cells become cancerous, they just begin to look more and more bizarre. So um, uh, initially, the first thing we see is what's called low-grade dysplasia. 
And then the next thing you see is high-grade dysplasia. And high-grade dysplasia is very abnormal cells that are almost synonymous with, with the cancer itself. So when to repeat an endoscopy really depends on uh, whether there is dysplasia or not. Um, if there is low-grade dysplasia, um, I don't know the exact frequency, but it's probably something on the order of about a year or so that we would repeat an endoscopy. If it's high-grade dysplasia, you really are worried that there's cancer there. And at that point, you know, it's a discussion with a surgeon potentially uh, about, about whether there's um, a surgeon and a gastroenterologist about whether surgery or some other procedure to kind of burn or eradicate these areas uh, is indicated or not. Um, if it's just intestinal metaplasia without any dysplasia, uh, my understanding is that it's relatively controversial and unclear because the risk is very, very low. In which case, then, to repeat an endoscopy in a couple of years just to make sure that everything is stable or better, um, you know, would make sense. Um, certainly, um, intestinal metaplasia can be caused by kind of acid reflux production. Um, so, so normally, uh, patients are also started on medications to, um, uh, to suppress acid in the stomach, uh, medications such as, you know, Nexium, Prilosec, um, uh, Protonix, things like that. Thank you. Um, and a question for Dr. Um, Sunball. Can a targeted drug like Herceptin cause peripheral neuropathy? Um, typically, no. Uh, I mean, anything can happen, but uh, in the majority of patients, I mean, with, along with the clinical experience, um, we don't typically see uh, a neuropathy from trastuzumab or what's called herceptin. Um, th these, uh, you know, neuropathy is usually seen with uh, drugs such as most commonly we use oxaliplatin, um, or uh, there are other other drugs uh, such as cisplatin sometimes used, and also uh, in the second line setting we use a drug called paclitaxel. I just want to note out that uh, in some patients sometimes what what I see happening, and I don't know if what the the, the person asking question is asking that because of the following is. You know, sometimes we have patients, for example, on oxaloplatin combined with uh, uh, another drug along with trastuzumab, and they're on this for some time, usually like a few months or four months or so, and then the, they develop maybe mild neuropathy, um, and then the oxaloplatin is stopped, and then they see that while they're off the oxaloplatin, they're still having neuropathy, and even in those few months after stopping the oxaloplatin, they see that the neuropathy is getting worse. So sometimes they think it's from the other drugs, from the perception or the 5-FU or others, but it's usually really from still residual effect of the oxaloplatin. The neuropathy from uh, those drugs really can last for months or even more than a year in some patients. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, and then um, a question for, um, for Dr. Ku. If someone has gastritis and problems with digestion from a lack of enzymes from the pancreas, are they more prone to cancer? Um, the, I mean, there, there are conditions, um, there are specific conditions um, of gastritis, something called atrophic gastritis, uh, where there is an increased risk of developing stomach cancer. Um, so, so, so um, again, I'm, I don't know the specific guidelines or recommendations as to, you know, whether someone like that may need uh, more frequent endoscopies or not. 
um, it's definitely an important question to, to reach out to the gastroenterologist about. The, the other issue I, I think um, may be unrelated. I think if there is digestion issues related to the pancreas, uh, I'm not aware that there's any, you know, relationship with, with the stomach itself. Um, you know, the pancreas basically sits behind the stomach. Um, so, but aside from that, there's not a direct relationship uh, between the pancreas or the stomach and, and what we call pancreatic insufficiency um, certainly does not increase the risk of developing stomach cancer. Thank you. Um, and um, we have a question from... Um this is uh, um, Dr. Samba. What is your take on keyhole surgery for gastric cancer? In what time surgery? A keyhole, keyhole surgery for gastric cancer. Laparoscopic surgery, um, maybe so yeah, maybe they mean laparoscopic yeah surgery or robotic mm -hmm. surgery. Yeah, I mean the the take is this. It's usually for, for uh, you know, for surgery in general, uh, for gastric cancer surgery in general, uh, we recommend for the surgeries to be done in, uh, you know, in high volume centers uh, with, with surgeons who are, you know, expert in, in, in doing uh, stomach surgeries, whether it's, uh, you know, laparoscopic or, or open, uh, this is really a decision for the, you know, for the surgeon uh, in that center to kind of decide because everyone is different. But whenever uh, laparoscopic surgery is possible, uh, it's, it's preferable, especially, you know, we see that with uh, es esophageal uh, cancers or when the cancer of the stomach is really arising from the GE junction uh, between the es esophagus and the stomach. We always prefer for patients to get robotic or, or minimally invasive, we call them, uh, surgery, uh, rather than having like a, a, a big open uh, surgery just because of the, uh, you know, less morbidity and uh, uh, the fact that those patients recover faster uh, after the surgery from minimally invasive surgery. But again, uh, I think in general, the take home message is uh, I usually tell patients, you know, you know, chemotherapy might not be different between centers, but what's different is really the the surgery is is definitely different. And you want to get your your stomach surgery in a big center where they have a surgeon that specializes in, in gastric cancer. Well, thank you so much, and I want to thank our speakers. I know we could go on for quite some time. We have many more questions in queue, but I want to thank our speakers. You've been excellent, and I also want to thank all of our participants. Um, for all of your wonderful questions today. Really have enhanced the call today. And um, I want to kind of uh, help to uh, acknowledge, that, first of all, that um, what a wonderful call this has been and that uh, it's terrific that uh, we've had so many questions and such great speakers. But I do want to acknowledge that if those who didn't get to ask a question, what to do. So those of you who didn't get to ask a question or those of you who asked a question or those of you who have a question still to ask, we would encourage you to go back to treating healthcare team, that's very important, and to bring your questions to them. Um, uh, and indeed, um, that actually is um, a very important thing um, to do, to take your questions back to treating healthcare team, because um, they're the ones who know you the best and they can help you the best. So remember, um, and if you asked a question today, still take your question back to treating healthcare team. 
for their input on this as well. Most importantly, as we round up this program today, I would not want any one of you to feel you're alone in coping with gastric cancer. Um, although, of course, it's tempting to feel alone with, um, with the um, COVID and Omicron variant and variants out there. But nevertheless, um, we want you to know that you're now part of the community of support, both from the Gastric Cancer Foundation and from Cancer Care and from the and your healthcare team. All those members of your healthcare team are there to help you as well. So that's really important. I, again, want to just thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Um, thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.